Yes, really excited about what God has in store for us starting this, uh, this Wednesday with all our Welcome Wednesdays. Good morning, everyone. My name is Evangelist Stunis. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, part of the preaching team here at uh, Westview. A uh, special welcome to all of you here in person and those joining us online. I trust and pray that the Lord has something special for us this morning. As you know, we are starting off with a series on the Lord's Prayer and how the Lord's Prayer serves to uh, form community in His followers. It's an interesting uh, way of looking at the Lord's Prayer, um, but that's what we'll be doing starting with this morning. But before we do, uh, I'd like to share uh, an article that uh, I read a couple of months ago from The Atlantic. And it's an interesting article. It's, uh, it's titled, Why So Many Americans Have Stopped Going to Church. Now, we're not in American culture, but I think the observations that the writer makes can pretty much be broadened to Western culture, of which we are a part. And I think we can, to varying degrees, relate. So listen to what he says. About 40 million Americans have stopped going to church in the past 25 years. That's something like 12% of the population, and it represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. The Great Dechurching, a forthcoming book, attempts to figure out why so many Americans have left churches in recent years. The authors find that religious abuse and corruption do play roles in pushing attendees away, but that a much larger share of the people surveyed indicated that they left the church for more banal reasons. The book suggests that the defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or, as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. As the author notes, part of the problem is the unusual role that religion has come to play in some Americans' lives. The Atlantic writer Derek Thompson coined the term workism in 2019 and diagnosed himself as a worker under its thrall. The economists of the early 20th century did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production. They failed to anticipate that for the poor and middle class, work would remain a necessity, but for the college-educated elite, it would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. Workism doesn't deliver on these promises, he said. Thompson noted, our jobs were never meant to shoulder the burdens of a faith, and they are buckling under the weight. For those who come to view work as the guiding principle of life, other priorities can quickly fall by the wayside. The underlying challenge for so many is that their lives are stretched like a rubber band about to snap, and church attendance 
ends up feeling like an item on a checklist that's already too long. At its core, the issue is not just church attendance, but rather what American society has become. The problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many, many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. So I have two questions to ask. The first one is, so what are we doing here? All are welcome Wednesdays, the year of community. We want to build community with this reality in the backdrop. Are we being naive? Is this a pipe dream? Are we sure we know what God is calling us to? If this is the reality of the culture out there, is this really something that we feel God wants us to pursue? Second question is a bit more personal. And I'd invite you to ramp up the realness index here. I want us to be real with each other, with ourselves. I want us to listen and be willing to be vulnerable and open. And the question I ask, the second question I ask is, in light of what this author wrote about this American way of life and workism and all that, can you relate? Do you find yourself at times feeling guilty that this describes your life? Do you feel that this way of life, this culture, has chewed you up and spit you out, left by the wayside? Do you feel like mental illness, anxiety, these kind of things are ramping up? Can you relate? The question I have is, where do we go from here? What is the way forward? And does the Bible speak into this reality, into this cultural moment that we find ourselves in? So let's dive into the Lord's Prayer and let's see what, in fact, God has in store for us. First, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you. Lord, I don't say that word lightly, our Father. Lord, you have called us as your children, and we come before you as your children, asking that you would open our hearts and our minds, speak truth into our lives, into our souls, and impact us in a way, Lord, that we would walk forward in a manner that pleases you, that honors you, and bears witness to your existence, to your love, your grace, your reality, Lord. Give us willing hearts, willing minds, and ears to hear what you have to say for us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read the Lord's Prayer together. In fact, I would invite us all to stand. Why don't we say the Lord's Prayer together? (coughs) 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. You may be seated. So today we will be looking at the first two words of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. And two questions I have for us this morning are, what do we mean by God as Father? And second, how does God being Father cultivate community? Now, just uh, some background on this term of God as Father. I'm going to give a quote by R.C. Sproul. I find he puts it really, really well. He says, since the science of comparative religion reached its zenith in the 19th century and liberal theologians sought to reduce the core essence of all religions to the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man, it has followed from such liberal assumptions that to consider God as father would be a most basic assumption in any religion. And I think it's important for us to note that because considering God as Father across multiple faiths is something that we take for granted today. But has that always been the, the case? Has that always been the reality? And I would take us back to this back and forth banter that Jesus had with the religious leaders of the day. We're going to go back to John chapter 5 and read verses 6 to 18 and notice the, the interplay between Jesus and the religious leaders. Just to put it into context, Jesus has just healed a, a paralyzed man, a paralytic, who was at the pool called Bethesda. And it so happened that he healed him on the Sabbath. And listen to what he says. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And if we look at the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, every instance, every time Jesus prayed to God or, or spoke to God, he always addressed God as Father. My Father, our Father, Holy Father, Abba Father. He always, every single time, he addressed them as Father. So why did the Pharisees get so upset at Jesus? Does the Bible support the concept of God being Father and of Jesus calling him his Father, my Father, in other words? If we go back to Deuteronomy 32... Look what it says in starting with verse 3. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Then turning to the children of Israel, it says, They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord? You foolish and unwise people, is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? 
<clears throat> so in a sense, calling God our Father makes sense because he is the creator of us all. He created the whole human race. So there is a, a, a good sense in addressing him as our Father, our creator God. Now if we fast forward to arrive in the New Testament after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, look what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 8, starting from verse 15. <clears throat> Excuse me. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So how do we get from Israel, where you can't call God your father, to the church where we're invited for everyone to cry out, Abba, Father, my father. <clears throat> Let's see if we can shed some light on this, this conundrum here by looking at Isaiah 63, starting from verse 15. Isaiah says, look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us, but you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. So here we begin to unpack give some clarity to what is meant by God being called Father by the children of Israel. So it, at, first, at first look, it might seem that, that Isaiah is calling God Father because he was Israel's creator. But it's not that simple because we know that he has created the whole human race and yet he had not established a covenant relationship with everyone. We know that Isaiah addressed him. Uh, he regarded Israel's connection to God as something special, something unique, and different from what could be said about the entire human race. For him to call God Father was to acknowledge a particular relationship with him. And what was that particular relationship? In these verses, we see that he is Israel's creator, but he is also its redeemer which reveals the true nature of the special relationship that God has with his chosen people to redeem the nation of Israel and, in fact, the whole human race. Now turn to Psalm 103 and see how God relates to the children of Israel. <clears throat> Starting from verse 13, look what it says. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Stop right there. This word compassion, <clears throat> in King James, it's the word pity, as the Lord has pity on his children. But both words don't really convey the depth of the, the, the word in the Hebrew. The word is a very deep, gut-level, emotional word that speaks of the love the utter love, emotional love that God has for his children. Another, another passage where it appears again is in Isaiah 49. Look what it says in verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I 
will not forget you. Is there any greater love, God is saying here, than a nursing mother with her child that she has born? And that, he says, I know I'm setting the bar pretty high. There is practically no greater human love than a mother nursing her child, her infant child. And he asks the question, can a mother forget that as intense as that love, that compassion is, can a mother forget? Even if that were possible, he says, I will not forget you. That's the, the degree, the intensity of the love and the compassion that God has for his children. And just as a side note, I don't want to go too far, th- too far into this, but in case sometimes you think or have heard that God is a male and he's not a female and male fathers accurately uh, portray the image of the father love of God and mothers do not. Here we see how by the mixing of these metaphors, God, both the father love and the mother love, all parent love is rooted in the father love of God. God is gender neutral. He is spirit, but he uses male and female characteristics to convey the intensity of who he is as a person. So as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. What is he saying here? He's saying he loves us so much that it's not a performance kind of love. It's not that we have to do anything. Just the fact that we are his children, he loves us. And even if we are What he means by being dust means that we are broken, we are flawed, we are sinful. We'll go from dust to dust. But he knows that, and yet he still loves us. Isn't that a a, a picture of a parent? Picture a parent who might have four or five children. And one is very sickly, very weak, very fragile, maybe wayward. Don't you find very often the love of the parent gravitates to that one child? Regardless of what they do for the parent, the love of the parent extends even more for that weaker child. And so God is saying here, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Why? Because he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Its place remembers it no more. Can you relate to this? Are you at a stage in your life where you can't feel like you have a place, a place that you can call home, a place where you can just decompress exhale and feel like this is where I can have some peace in this life. This is what God knows about our reality, our condition, our human condition. He knows that we are passing by, that we are temporary, that we are like the grass, like the flower of the field where the wind blows over it and it's gone and its place remembers it no more. There's no place that I can call home. But, he says, where is home? Where is a place that you can rest in? He says, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those 
who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. There he is bringing up the covenant relationship, the special relationship that he had with the children of Israel. And he says, from everlasting to everlasting, my, lo- my love, says the Lord, is with my children who keep my covenant. But we know that if we follow the narrative of, of the children of Israel, things didn't go well, right? There was no children that kept his covenant. In fact, they went so wayward that he even had to send them into exile. And then silence. So what's God to do now? Is he to look at the plan and say, it was a great plan, looked good at the start, oh well, I'll maybe crush this up and go for plan B? Is that what he decides to do? No. In fact, what he did was he continued with his plan of keeping the covenant with the children of Israel. And over time, 400 years later, after the exile, we know that there arose one faithful, perfect, covenant-keeping Israelite who wasn't just any Israelite, but he was her Messiah, her king, the one who fulfilled her destiny in himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he came, how did he continue this father love, this, this extension of, of this love of the father for his children? In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, it says in verse 11, he, namely Jesus, came to that which was his own, namely to the children of Israel, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There it is. To those that did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look what John says also in his first epistle, chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Going back to the words of Paul in in Romans 8, we have received him and we have received the spirit that brought about this adoption to sonship. We were not children, we were not sons and daughters, but by receiving him, by believing in his name, he gave the right for us to be adopted into sonship. And by that, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, it's not only that we are given this status of adopted children, but he has also given us his divine nature. Isn't that what Peter says? That those great and precious promises allows us to become partakers of the divine nature. So we are adopted sons and daughters by status, and we also, by the Spirit who indwells us, have the very nature of God. Now that is true of who I am, of who you are, and you, and you, and you. But how does community come about? Why wouldn't it just be enough for a me or you to be a son or daughter, to cry out, Abba, Father, and let's just bide our time until the return of Christ. Why is it necessary for community to come about? And how does it come about? Look at 1 John chapter 5, the opening verse. Look what it says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Okay. 
And everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. So it's almost the spirit that indwells us causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. But not only that, this love for Abba, Father, also spills out into loving his children as well. Now, why is it important that we form community? Why is it important to God that community be established? Look what Jesus said in his great priestly prayer in John 17, starting from verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone namely the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that, listen to this, so that they may be brought to complete unity. That is the pursuit. That is the goal. So that they may be brought to complete unity. So that we would form community and be united and be one. Why? Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. To what extent does God the Father love us? Even as... He loves his son, his beloved son, Jesus. Now, what's Jesus saying here? I want to I paint the picture of why community is important, how community is formed, and for what purpose. He says, you and I, Father, were in community, and you created humanity to join us and experience this community together. But alas, sin entered into the world and destroyed everything. So we see in our present day condition, brokenness, problems, sin that is in our world. But although this is the human condition that is common to everybody, this is not the starting point of why we need community. There's a new king in town. And that king is Jesus. That is our starting point. Why do we need community? It's not the starting point to start with sin. It's not so we can get our problems fixed, though that will take place. Rather, we need to start with a pre-fall vision of creation. I've said before, and I'll say it again, that very often when we read our Bibles, we start two chapters too late, and finish two chapters too early. What do I mean by that? We start with sin and to the world. Okay, we have a problem of sin. we got to fix sin. And we end up with the devil being banished into the lake of fire, and sin has been taken care of. But in fact, the origins of the Bible narrative start with creation, a beautiful creation, where God created the heavens and the earth. And every time he created something, he saw it and it was good. He created this, he saw that it was good. He created the human race and he said, this is very good. There was a beauty to what was formed in creation. And we look at the end in Revelation, the last two chapters, 
show the, the new Jerusalem descending from heaven, where heaven and earth are joined together. And there's a beauty and a harmony that is built in. That is the vision that we need to look at. What is community after all? Let me give you this definition. Community is the connections, the bridges, the relationships that are made so that love may flow from one to another. And what is love? Love is the total self-emptying, self-giving of myself for the flourishing of another so that the other person may flourish. And what do I mean by flourish? Flourish is not just being fixed from the ravages of sin, though that will happen. It's becoming the vision of who God created you to be. Of course, that's going to be completed on that side of heaven, but nevertheless, community is instrumental in bringing us along that path. You see, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were in community before the creation of the world. They had no problems, there was no presence of sin, and yet they were in community and are in community. They still gave of themselves for the flourishing of the other members of the Trinity. Remember that term, perichoresis, that Greek term which speaks of the, the divine dance of the Trinity, extending and receiving love to and from one another. That was the reality of the community of the Trinity. In Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he talks about the mission of marriage in one of his chapters. And if you ask people, what is the mission? What is the goal of marriage? You'll hear answers like, well, it's, it's, it's for romance, it's to have fun, uh, to start a family, have kids. What he says, the Christian view of the mission of marriage is deep character change through deep friendship. Deep character change through deep friendship. In other words, as the husband and wife come together, one spouse helps to fulfill the vision of who God designed the other person to become. So it's engaging in the vision of seeing who you are destined to be and the spouse saying, I want to play a role in helping you become that person in a way that you wouldn't able to become on your own. And even though the husband and wife are sinners, are flawed, are imperfect, they have imperfections, by them coming together, there is a meshing and a clashing, as Tim Keller puts it. There is a meshing and a clashing to coming together where the rough edges are chiseled off one another and that slab of marble becomes that beautiful sculpture that God desires in each and every one of us. That is the, the mission of marriage. Now, the marriage relationship is the most intense form of human community that exists. <clears throat> but in the same way, God wants his children to enter into community for the same purpose, deep character change through deep friendship. Now, why is love necessary in this mix? Why does love need to be in there? Look what Jesus said in John 13. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, this is what will bear witness that I am at work in your midst. The love that you have for one another. But it's interesting, if we ask the question, who does the everyone include? Very often we think of culture, humanity, society around us. But listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 3, starting from verse 8. And see what it says about who the everyone includes. This grace was given me, he says, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So set the drum roll here. There is something hidden that God is about to reveal, he says. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's he saying here? He wants to put the church on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms to show his multifaceted wisdom. Ipolipikilia, it's in the Greek wisdom of God, that this was his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's he saying here? This is the ultimate celestial mic drop. This is what God is saying. He wants to go to this, the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms and say, look at my church. You came into my beautiful creation and wreaked havoc. You tore it apart. And death and evil ensued. But through my church, this was my original intent. This was my eternal purpose. This is what I wanted accomplished in my son. And behold my church. Behold this community of love that has formed. Now how was God's eternal purpose accomplished through Jesus? And how do we receive this love? How does this love melt our hearts so that we're transformed and able to form community? Okay. I want you to put your devices down now. If you're taking notes, I want you to put your pen down. I'd like to speak to your heart, not to your mind as much at this point. So listen up. What I said at the start of my message that every single time Jesus addressed his father, he called him father. That was actually technically inaccurate because he didn't address God, father, every single time. There was one time when he didn't. And when was that time? When he was hanging on the cross how did he cry out to his father? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? What was actually taking place at that moment on the cross? Jesus once said, foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man 
has no place. What was, what was home for Christ? Where did he call home? Where did he call his safe place? It was with the Father. It was that community that he had with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was his home. That was his place. But hanging on the cross, that father-son relationship was severed, was cut. In one of the great mysteries of the Trinity, he was abandoned by his father so that justice could be served, justice could be satisfied. And in so doing, laying aside his father-son, his filial relationship with his heavenly father, he paved the way for us to enter into that relationship with the father. Amen? That is what he accomplished on the cross. And that is how we now, by receiving this truth, can enter into relationship, not only with Abba Father, not only with our Lord and Savior, but through the power of the Spirit and the Spirit indwelling us, we can call each other sisters and brothers and form community. Amen? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Yes, Father, what love is this? that you would send your Son, your one and only precious Son, to die on the cross, that he would open up the way for us to enter into this filial relationship of sons and daughters with you, where through the Spirit we can cry out, Abba, Father, as you welcome us, Lord, into your love. May we welcome one another and be instruments in your hands to accomplish something beautiful in the lives of each other, that the world would take note that you are at work in our midst, that we would be captured with the vision that you have for each of us, and in so doing, Lord, to participate and experience your love, your beauty, your grace. We pray these things and thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you, Evange. So now uh, for the next uh, five or ten minutes, uh, we're going to have a time of question and answer. And um, the questions have already begun. Uh, does anyone in the room have a question, by the way? Raise your hand. The mic will head there. Uh, in the meantime, we have a question. This is about the Lord's Prayer. Why do you suppose the New International Version leaves out? And why did you, the end of Matthew 6.13, Jesus' words, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I think most of us were brought up by this version. Um, so then there's another question 
uh, after that. But so just for this. Uh, variations on a theme. I think it's just the different uh, recordings of the, of, of the actual prayer. He probably said that, and uh, some did, some didn't. It's, uh, um, it's not a game changer. Yeah, actually, the, uh, so the reason why it's not in the uh, NIV or the ESV or really most translations is the, the, so the traditional ending for thine is the power and the glory for an ever, ever, and amen, um, that's not in the oldest manuscripts. Um, kind of a, the theory that I've heard that makes the most sense to me is that it was added by a scribe because otherwise the prayer seems to end kind of abruptly. So it just kind of feels kind of feels like there should be something like that there. And there's nothing unbiblical about saying, for thine is the kingdom and the power forever, you know, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And you can say it if you want. And it is in some old manuscripts. That's why the King James has it. But if you're going to take a scientific approach to uh, biblical, you know, uh, uh, Bible scholarship, um, I think most scholars would probably agree that it wasn't in the original text. Although some, I think, would, some, there are some people that would disagree with that. But so you can go and read more about it uh, if you want. Um, here's a question also How can you say God is gender neutral if the entire Bible refers to God as him, he, his, anyone who's ever faced him? He's described as a man. Uh, Genesis 32 24 to 30 says God is a man. Yes, this is the case where we're using the limitations of human language to describe an infinite God. And there are what are called anthropomorphisms in the Bible where we take human language and things that we can understand to describe God. But we know that God is not a human being. God the Father is a spirit and in fact, it does not have a gender. And very often we see it, many, many metaphors that are mixed and matched that describe God, describe his characteristics. And very often we see female characteristics and other times we see male characteristics. Yeah, sure. I mean, once more, that is, there is no, uh, it, it really depends on what do you mean by that. If you say, like, God doesn't have a gender, what do you mean by that? Well, he's a spirit. He doesn't, he's not a physical person. If, and there are scriptures that say God is a man, but once more you say, what do you mean by that? Because once Jesus was a man, Jesus was a man with a gender. That is true. Um, God the Father, it is true that when we think of how God has revealed himself, the usual way, the most common way is with masculine pronouns and so that is a way that he wants us thinking about him often but as was quoted today there are times when he compares himself to a nursing mother and there are times like evangel was saying we can think of him that way i think to say that god you can say gee jesus has a gender but to say god has a gender is an oversimplification of both the words gender and just the concept of god so um, that's probably how I'd answer that. The text line seems to be going. Is, is, what else is going on in the room? Is there another, did, is there any hands? I didn't see if any hands went up. Uh, why does this always happen, by the way? The questions start flowing in once I get up here. Save the number in your phone. 
Send the questions during the message. This is just my encouragement. <laughs> because then all of a sudden they're, they're coming in and I can't even read them. Okay. Uh, so um, uh, there is, can you clarify why Jesus had to be abandoned on the cross? So, uh, yeah, I think the word abandoned, yeah, I'll let you take that first. I have some thoughts there. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And as such, by taking on the sin of humanity upon himself, the Father, in a sense, had to turn the other way, had to deal with sin on the cross, and in such, had to sever that relationship. Uh, yeah, the, the whole idea of, for I mean, this is Isaiah 53. For the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like, Jesus was punished in our place. So, did God abandon Jesus? Well, ultimately, no. In the long run, no, because then he was exalted you know, to the right hand of the Father. The long-term plan wasn't to literally abandon him in that sense. But he was temporarily punished for our sake. Once more, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And some people have wondered, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, was that because, like, as the old hymn goes, God turned his back? Or was that because while sin was laid upon Jesus, sin has a blinding effect? And while God still was his father, he couldn't see that because sin was, was on his shoulders. I mean, that, that's a conversation that, that I suppose someone could have. But the big point that needs to be understood is that we deserve death. We deserve punishment due to our sin, but Jesus took that punishment for us. And uh, I think, that's, yeah. I also wanted to add to say that that's why I prefaced my remarks by saying that this is one of the great mysteries of the Trinity because we can't fully comprehend how that can be. And yet we know that sin was punished on the cross in the very body of Jesus. But the reality is, being the Son of God, sin never has the last word. Death could not hold him, it says, and that is why he rose back to life. Okay, there's a lot of text. I apologize, we're not going to get to all of yours. And uh, this is this will be the last question, so the 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 band can come back up. Um, this is connected along the same thing. Uh, why didn't Jesus call God call God his Father on the cross when he needed him most? That's, I think feel like we kind of touched on that, but that's just, once more a good question. Yeah. He felt, that he, he felt that he wasn't there for him at the time, and that's why he said, my God. He didn't, he didn't appreciate that intimacy of relationship with his father at that precise time. Uh, I'm going to actually be honest and say I don't totally know. I, they, that's a, a good answer. If I had to kind of take a stab at it, I'd probably say along the same lines, and this I think relates to us. When I'm feeling closest to God, 
I can call him father and understand that. Understand that he hears my prayers and he cares and he loves me and everything's going to be okay and there's no reason to worry and everything's going to be provided because I have a father in heaven who owns everything and he's paying close attention. When I'm feeling close to God, I can call him father. Um, when I am feeling far and I'm scared and I'm very aware of my sin and, my, and faith is not at work on the forefront of my mind, maybe I'll say, Father, but I won't really get it, okay? I really think this is true. The Lord's Prayer, if we can get that first word, Father, if that can be real and solidified in our hearts, God is our Father, if we get that, we get everything. Everything flows out of that truth. Um, so, you know what? We're going to merge into communion. Thank you, Evange.